You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Hi, Marketing News Canada. Welcome to another episode here. I want to introduce all of our listeners to Kenneth Wong. Ken is a distinguished professor of marketing at Queen's University. He's worked with hundreds of firms of varying size, industry, and geography over his last 40 years as a professor, consultant, speaker, author, and entrepreneur. He has won national and local teaching and marketing awards, including the Canadian Marketing Hall of Legends. Ken, I was looking through your accolades on the website and had to scroll down a couple times there under your different boards and your accolades. It is indeed quite exciting to have you join us, be able to share some of your insights today to our listeners and myself. Welcome, Ken. We're really excited to get to know you a little bit better today. Thank you. Thank you for the uh, kind introduction, too. I'll have to uh, pass on the compliments to my uh, PR. (laughs) Now, Ken, I wanted to jump right into this. How did you get into marketing? And essentially, what is your origin story? And how did you find yourself starting on this long path of professional and consultant within the marketing world? It's an interesting story because you often hear the notion, you know, are are marketers born or are marketers made? And in my case, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest with you. The origins really happen in in my family. My father, uh, his brothers and sisters started up a family business, which became Canada's largest processor of Chinese food. And, uh, And interestingly enough, you know, when you're in a family business, you're privy to about Oh, roughly 360 board meetings a year. They call it dinner <laughs> <laughs> because you're always, always talking business. And, uh, you know, because we were trying to, uh, my father was trying to create a, a business selling an ethnic product to a white market. And as such, we always talked about the consumer and how they thought about things. And, you know, uh, it made great sense, for example, you, you don't lead with bird's nest soup. And if you do, you certainly don't tell them what's in a bird's nest. Absolutely. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you lead with egg rolls and pineapple chicken and stuff like that. I, I can remember it because, you know, as a small business, you do everything yourself. And so we were the test lab at home. And uh, uh, my dad would often call and he'd say, uh, I'm bringing home some new stuff for you to try. I want you to invite your friends, but he said, just your white friends, just your white friends. <laughs> there are customers. <laughs> so, so I, I learned very early to think about the customer in that way. And then when I got to Queens for my undergraduate degree, I remember the day I was sitting in an intro to marketing, marketing 100 class. And uh, the professor was, uh, you know, one of these, these tried and true marketers. And he was, mm-hmm. uh, he was at the time also the president of the local golf club. And uh, he was telling us about an address he made to the board of directors. Now, at this time, golf was on the downswing. This is the pre-Tiger Woods days. And it was the days of, you know, Chrissy Everett mm-hmm. and Connors and McEnroe and, and all of these people. And so, of course, everybody was flocking to tennis and away from golf. And so he was called in to help them figure out how to get golfers back. And uh, he tried out his speech on us. And the first line was, you may think we compete against other golf clubs, but in reality, we compete against anything that places demands on the consumer's discretionary time and income. And when he said it, I literally felt a chill. 
And I thought, well, what a neat way to, to think about things. Years later, I'm at Harvard Business School, and there's a guy named Ted Levitt, and he's talking about marketing myopia. You know, how railroads shouldn't have worried about other railroads. They needed to worry about other forms of transportation and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. Turn the hands of time forward two decades. I'm reading, reading Simon Sinek, Start With Why, and we're all at the same point. So part of it was, I think, simply a byproduct of how I was raised. And part of it was simply a byproduct of what I was exposed to uh, during my studies. And what made sense to me, probably given my background, that's why it made sense. That's so interesting. It resonates very strongly with myself on several different levels. Uh, I think culturally and definitely interest-based. Um, my wife is third-generation Canadian from Bradford. And in her family, I'm the only Chinese Taiwanese member on their side. And I definitely do remember that type of approach when testing a new menu item or testing a new recipe okay. at their house. <laughs> and then the way that you you found in and experienced what those those moments were you that that caught your interest in marketing and shaped the way you're thinking. It's so interesting to hear that you see and hear the same trends and the same questions of why throughout your your different stages of your professional and, and academic career. That's actually a great point, you know, because the questions don't change. The answers do, but the questions don't. Absolutely. The the way you ask them or what you're trying to find out will always be the same. I'm very curious, and I feel really blessed to be able to talk to you today because you have worlds more experience than I do in marketing. Um, I am so curious to hear and have you reflect on some of the biggest watershed moments in marketing spends and approaches in your time working in marketing, whether that's disruptive technology-based, a smartphone. I'm wondering, what have you seen? You know, What is your gut telling you for what are those biggest watershed moments in marketing spends in your time working and studying marketing? Sure. Well, there have been a few, but let me start with a little bit of a disclaimer. You know, you originally said I I have a lot more experience than you, and certainly I have a lot more years than you. But as I often tell my students, you know, you have a choice in in the career and who you want to compete against. I said, you know, you can focus on strategy and traditional media, in which case you're up against guys like me who have been doing this for 40 years. Good luck. (laughs) Or alternatively, you know, you can think about new media and let's use the term generally MarTech, marketing technology. And as much as I might strive and my contemporaries might strive to stay abreast of what's happening, the reality is we're not power users. We're not really experiencing that technology the same way you are. So I think in some respects, I may have more experience. In other respects, I probably have a lot less. As far as, um, you know, what I've seen happen, it may surprise you that what I see happening is not so much a change in the consumer, although there have been some, not so much even a change in how we do our craft, although there have been been many. The big change comes in marketing's response to the financial pressures on the business. You know, we sometimes forget about that, right? We really only exist for one reason, and that's to further the interests of the enterprise, which loosely means helping them make more money. They don't really care whether we win awards. They don't really care about, you know, how many mentions we get or anything else. Those are metrics we use ourselves to determine the effectiveness and efficiency of our work. What they're concerned with, are we translating to the bottom line? And so I often find uh, in working with my clients, a lot of our thought is, how are we going to present this to the CEO and CFO? 
how are we going to get this through the C-suite? Because if we can't get the resources, it doesn't matter how brilliant the underlying thinking is or the creativity, it's not going to happen. I'll give you a specific example. When I was going through my undergrad program, and, and this is the mid-70s now, so I'm, you have to recall, I'm a little bit of a hippie here. But when I was going through in 1970s, brand management was the desired job. Everybody who was anybody wanted to go into brand management because that was really the closest thing that you could find to actually running a business. Uh, hmm. You know, it wasn't just the Marcom function. It was the general management of that particular brand. And companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever would spend a fortune, an absolute fortune on staff training. You know, P&G were constantly running lunch and learn sessions on how to recognize a big idea, how to evaluate copy, and so on. Mm-hmm. But when margins started to get strained because the consumer started buying on the basis of price a little bit more, all of a sudden, the P&G and the others started to reduce their training budgets. And as a consequence, so we had to do a lot more in exec ed and a lot more in our undergraduate preparations because they couldn't expect that finishing school once they started working. If you think about it, a lot of the drive towards digital right now, the biggest appeal of digital to the CFO CEO has nothing to do with our ability to personalize or put it on a mobile platform or anything else. What they really love is that it's just cheaper than advertising. You know, it's a lot easier to create a YouTube video than it is to run a 60 second commercial. And so you started to see a little more guerrilla marketing coming up as well, which fit, of course, very well with social media. But the principles, the principles haven't changed. You know, social media, we talk about it now, it's, it's just word of mouth marketing. That's what we used to call it, word of mouth. And just as we used to say, there's nothing more credible than an unsolicited and unpaid for endorsement. Mm-hmm. The same is true of social. You know, it's the old story. I can tell you a million things about myself. You may choose to believe or not believe them. But if you hear it from someone else, you tend to believe it. That's a really good point. I often say when I have speaker opportunities myself that social media is, is modern day word of mouth. I would used to hear from my friend, you know, what are the best date spots to take a date to for restaurants? And I see that a lot less now. And what I see instead is I'll see a friend and family member share an image of a delicious looking dish on my social media. And that has replaced the need to ask some of those friends directly, hey, what do you recommend? I'm getting those unsolicited recommendations, as you say, um, just in my social media feed. But, you know, to to come back to your question about uh, turning points, I think, you know, in the field of marketing, you have to really discriminate two things. You've got strategy on one hand, which is determining what we want to be, how we want to present ourselves and so on. Mm -hmm. And then you have the technical or tactical side of marketing, which is how do we actually execute that strategy? Most of the action has really occurred on the technical side. Strategy has been strategy. I'm advising on strategies today, which are really not a whole lot different than in the 1970s and 80s. Now, we do have some new business models, don't get me wrong, but but in general, the, the, the strategies are pretty well constant. The biggest change right now is that because of all this new technology, because of analytics and, and so on, uh, we're able to do things we could never do before. You know, I, we always wanted to talk about a market of one, but there was no way you could execute a market of one unless you were a sales rep calling on a specific account. 
Now we can personalize just about everything, including your, your interactions with our website. You know, we can monitor it. We can suggest things to you. We can do a lot of things in that area. We have mobile technology. I can actually monitor your movements. I can be providing you with advice and product reviews while you're standing in the aisle of the store. Mm-hmm. That matter, you can do price checks standing in the aisle of the store. You know, what's the cheapest product within two kilometers of where I'm mm-hmm. sitting? It can do it all. We never had those capabilities before. And so the, the biggest challenge that I think older folks like myself have is looking at what we're doing and ask the question, were we doing it because it was the right thing to do or were we doing it because it was the only way we could get to this issue? Mm. And more often than not, what we discover is it was the only way we could do it. Now we've got these new capabilities. And so you really have to embrace them. But again, on the tactical side, Strategy doesn't change. Tactics and how we do it, the media and so on, phenomenal change. It's a really great way of framing it and looking at it. I find that also resonates really strongly with myself. I have that conversation, I think, several times a week with my teams. Um, And I know it's something that our listeners will also resonate with. And I'm curious as to during your experience in building strategies throughout these years and consulting on strategies, what has been something that you've seen? when it comes to whether it's an agency you're consulting or a brand that you're consulting, that is often missed in strategy that you have to remind your client on. Uh, I'm going to make a gross generalization here. It certainly doesn't apply. Please to do. Marketers have a natural predisposition or predilection towards bright, shiny objects, mm-hmm. new stuff. You know, we tend to want to use it. I call it looking for the cute factor. You know, we bring somebody into a room, we say, all right, what are we going to do to juice up sales? And all of a sudden, we've got this plethora of ideas of, well, we should do this, we should do that. And as soon as the committee finds something that they consider cute enough, everybody jumps on the bandwagon. It may be cute, but it may not be on strategy. And that's the biggest problem is, is coming back to, if this is your strategy, this has to be your mission critical. I'll give you an example. There are very few things have impacted on how we market more than the consumer's enhanced sensitivity to price. Because, of course, as prices come down, costs come down. And if costs come down too far, then areas like marketing, which are often considered semi-discretionary, our budgets tend to suffer, right? Because as the saying goes, I can stop marketing right here, right now, this moment. I won't lose all my sales tomorrow. There'll be some decay over time. But as long as I put it back later on, we'll be okay. And so every time we hit a recession or every time we hit a COVID-like circumstance where margins start coming under pressure and there's pressure for business performance, you know, we, we tend to look for ways of reducing our overall costs. And that really creates a, a number of problems because the real goal here is to find ways of reducing cost without destroying quality in the process. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the huge, huge advantage of new media and digital is that there's no depreciation of quality. You know, it's not like we're using cheaper ingredients. It's not like we're using less credible sources of information. We're Mm -hmm. simply tapping into the technology to make it to raise our productivity, if you will. And that requires that we really have to focus on what I call the mission critical tasks of the business. So. If you're competing on premium price, it's a simple formula. Nobody ever paid more for something they can get elsewhere for less. Mm -hmm. You have to differentiate. 
And if you ask the question, well, how can I differentiate? Well, there's only four ways you can do it, right? You either come up with a solution to a problem that nobody else can solve. Mm -hmm. You have that monopoly, you start up and you're making pretty good money. Unfortunately, what happens is because you're making good money and we live in a capitalist system, somebody copies you. And the moment they do, you lose your differentiation. So now what do you do? Well, now you start to add features, value-added services. You start to do bundling. You start to do integrated solutions. Then ultimately, it comes to where we are today. You're focusing on the customer experience, right? But you'll notice that there's a shift here away from the product, right? When we're selling the core product and its features, all of a sudden now we're selling that as part of a suite of related products or services. So the competition, the basis of differentiation isn't what I can do with this product. It's what I can do with this product and how it fits in with all the other products I'm also selling to Mm -hmm. give you a solution. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, for example, when Microsoft came out with Office, right, it it wasn't the first word processor. That was the product called WordPerfect. Excel wasn't the first spreadsheet. That was Lotus 123. And Microsoft came into this. They did something innovative. They actually watched people using product. And uh, they noticed that people were creating spreadsheets in Excel and then printing them out. Why? Well, because they needed something hard in front of them so they could re-enter the data when they went to create their word processing document. Hmm. Somebody in the lab said, geez, you know, I've got this thing called cut and paste create it in Excel, cut it, paste it into Word. And then somebody else said, well, let's create a hyperlink and it'll all happen automatically. And all of a sudden you start to see that, you know, in an integrated solution, the products are made in such a way that they actually create an additional benefit when they're used together. So I could use Lotus 1, 2, 3 and WordPerfect, but I couldn't get that seamless integration, that common user interface that made it easier to train people. Uh, that cut and paste facility. So all of a sudden we're moving from the product to the group or suite of products. And then Mm -hmm. once we got through, because everybody was selling the same basic suite, now we migrated to the customer experience. Now it's not so much what you sell as much as it is how you sell it. Once everybody reaches a standard there for the industry, we shift to the third level of competition, which is our differentiation. So now we're all solving the same problem. We're all solving it the same way. The only question is, who's doing it with the best level of real quality? Mm -hmm. Once the industry settles on a level of real quality, we shift to the fourth and final, which is perceived quality. How do we make ourselves look better than we really are? And interestingly, as you progress from that first level of differentiation through the fourth, the marketing spend as a percentage of sales revenue typically goes through the roof. Mm-hmm. When you got a monopoly, you don't need to sell a, do a whole lot of marketing. Just let them know what you've got and, and the sales made. By the time we get through to perceived marketing, well, now it's a battle of the creatives. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You've got four different levels of spending there is what it sounds like. Wow. Four levels of spending, four different skill sets. Which brands have done this the best in the last, let's say, two decades? has been able to hit all four of those differentiators and, and spend aside <laughs> which, which brands have been able to do it the best when, when it comes to showcasing those four different differentiators? That's a very difficult question to answer because I can't think of too many brands that have done it consistently over two decades. Hmm. Uh, and those that have tend to be kind of boring. It's the Procter & Gamble's of the world. Hmm. When people think P&G, you know, they think laundry detergent and ivory soap and, and all of that stuff. But P&G has done some extremely, extremely innovative things. For example, if you were to buy a, uh, a Braun product right now, B-R-A-U-N, Braun, if it has batteries, they're Duracell batteries. Procter & Gamble own both. Mm. Procter & Gamble have taken medical technology from their acquisition of Vicks and applied it to things like taste. So, for example, uh, it's not widely known, but if you're chewing gum by about the ninth chew, you've hit the plateau of flavor. You're not going to get more flavor after nine chews. That is not well known. That's news to me. So what P&G did is they turned to their folks at at Vicks and said, is there a time release formula? Can we give them 20 chews, a a longer-lasting flavor burst? You think about the technology in a lot of confectionery products right now. It's being borrowed from the pharmaceutical industry. The same things that we do with time-release capsules and so on, P&G does with flavor. And P&G has found a wonderful way of combining their brands to give you something really different. So in the old days, I might sell you fresh-scented Tide. No longer would we do that. Now it's Tide infused with Febreze. Two brand names at once, right? Double the impact, minimize the spend, a lot more efficiency. And now you're really differentiating because you're not just a fresh smelling detergent. You're a specific fresh smelling detergent because it's Febreze and not some mystery ingredient. So P&G has done a good job. They don't typically let their products, though, migrate to the fourth level. 
by the time they get to the fourth level, PMG tends to dismiss it and move on to something else. Their platform is always functional benefit. By contrast, if we look at a Lululemon, even in Apple computing, it is largely around the fourth level of differentiation, the perceived cool factor, the hip factor, or on trend and so on. I think that that's so interesting that P&G versus a Lululemon and what their priorities are within those differentiators can largely dictate my, as a consumer, my perceived quality or how much importance that perceived quality is. I see a lot of competitors right now coming up to Lululemon and trying to take that fashion function that they own so well and rebranded essentially a different way and focus on the different perceived quality aspects, that fourth differentiator that Lulam does so well as well, to try to gain market share. And they never, I mean, I, I don't see the, the numbers at Lululemon, but I, I would assume that the dent that they're making is negligible compared to where, where Lululemon is doing. It's very hard to compete against perception. Yeah. You know, I often ask audiences, I say, you know, uh, uh, how many of you think video games are the, the bane of society? And there's always a few, right? There's always about 10% of the audience who says, yeah, I, I don't let my kids play video games at all. Uh, why will I, you know, I'd rather have them forming social networks and developing athletic skills or reading a book or something of that ilk. And, and so I asked the question, well, so what you're really telling me is anybody who lets their kids you know, play video games, they must be a bad parent. And of course, they're very quick to uh, backtrack and say, no, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, for me, it's a personal decision. And it is because there's no empirical evidence. There's no science that says playing video games or not playing video games is a good thing. What the psychologists tell us, in fact, is as long as you have consistent rules around the use of video games, it can be good or bad. If it's consistent, always on or always off or always on within these parameters, your child grows up to be a functional human being. If, however, it's okay today, but not okay tomorrow, not okay the next day, but okay the next day, seemingly random, well, now you're breeding a generation of Woody Allens. You know, they're they're neurotic. They don't know what's right or, or what's wrong. The point I'm trying to make here is that if you have this opposition to video games, Right from the get-go, you are predisposed against anything that has to do with video games. You're never going to look at an Xbox ad. You don't care how fast the screen refresh rate is, how big the hard drive is, how many chat rooms you've got or anything else. You just think video games are bad. And as a consequence, you're opposed to it. Perception works the same way. Perception often isn't tied to an empirical basis. It's, there's something in the, in the human mind. And this is why I think uh, neuroscience is going to be the next big wave of interest in our, in our field. You know, we're trying to figure out how people form these perceptions. And, and if we can figure that out, then we can also figure out how to change those perceptions. But until we get there, why do you think Apple's cool? Might be a million reasons why. Why do we think Lululemon is cool? A million reasons why. But it will change over time. And, and, and so it becomes very, very difficult when, once you get to that fourth level. And that's why I think the spending gets so high at that level, too, is because I don't really have a, a logical story to tell you. And so all I can do is bombard you with this uh, ongoing notion of we're cool, we're cool, we're cool, and, and here's why. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot of this coming out of COVID right now. You're going to see all this drive towards the so-called purpose-driven brands. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I'm very worried, actually, about that, that movement. Uh, not because I don't think purpose is important, because I think that the product that still lies at the core. Recent surveys showed that consumers could lose 67% of all brands currently offered, and they wouldn't miss a beat. They really don't care. Wow. And the reason is they don't find the product does anything for them. So, you know, I, I don't care if you're supporting uh, EDII initiatives or, or sustainable environment or anything else. If your product doesn't work, I'm not buying it. And so that has to be the focus. I'm not saying that, that purpose doesn't have a role. I'm not saying emotional ties don't have a role. But fundamentally, you start with the core. What's the customer actually paying for? And if you can't deliver on that, the rest doesn't matter. It almost sounds like by the time you get to that fourth differentiator, you're going to find yourself in a place where you've had to solve for those first two with your actual product or service. That's so interesting. Um, I'd love to actually hear about some predictions you have with COVID. A lot of different habits shifting and the doors being blown off of perception on the way things had to work. Weddings being one of them, working from home being another one of them, office space. Coming out of COVID, what do you predict is going to be some of the biggest marketing trends that you see from brands? The biggest single trend will be a movement towards agile marketing, following on the software development model. And the reason I say that is that we are finding the consumer coming out of COVID unpredictable, to be honest with you. You know, uh, we don't know, for example, the last time we had a major epidemic like this was the 1920s, the great influenza. And coming out of it, the result was the roaring 20s. Everybody was so relieved. There was so much pent up demand. The economy was just got a huge injection all of a sudden, and the economy took off. We don't know if that's going to happen this time. Probably it will in some sectors. Travel, for example, restaurants would be another one. But in other areas, it's still not clear whether we're going to see the continuation of these trends. So gardening has taken off. Is that going to continue? I don't know. Toilet paper was at a shortage. Is that going to continue? No, it's not. Why? Well, because the reason we had a toilet paper shortage is that 40 to 45% of toilet paper is consumed out of home. Well, when you're not going out of home, you need more product in your home. And that's why we got the shortage that we got. RV purchases went up by about 76% last year, too. I uh, was doing some research in, in different industries. Um, I didn't know about gardening, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so we, we just don't know, you know where it's going to come out. And we don't know what the intersection will be with all of the new technology. Uh, you know, I'm 68 years of age and coming to the end of my active uh, professional career. If I was in my 20s right now, man, I'd be so excited. I, I would be so excited. There's just so many different ways you can play the game today. You know, you don't have to be that creative genius. You don't have to be that interpersonal, charismatic salesperson. You can do some stuff with technology. You know, there's a role. It's revenge of the nerds time almost. You know, you're going to see this massive influx of, of, of analysts coming in. And ultimately, I think brand managers are going to be the people who have to integrate all of these different approaches. You know, there's still a role for charismatic salespeople. You know, there's still a role for that creative genius who comes up with an innovative way of presenting a, an idea or presenting a platform. 
Mm-hmm. But there's also going to be a role now for somebody who sits back and, you know, looks at the numbers and spreadsheets and, and does all their work from the comfort of their computer screen. There's a lot of different ways if you're into marketing that you can make your mark these days. Not like the old days. I think our listeners are going to be very happy to have that confirmation from you and, and to, be, to be able to hear that essentially the approach to marketing and the, the barrier of entry is lower than it's ever been. That being said, the quality of the work will still be the determiner of how fast someone can rise and where they rise to within their marketing careers. Um, I'd love to sure. be a little bit greedy with my last question. And um, I wanted to be able to get your advice as a marketing professional. So for me, I am an agency owner. We have a team of 100 plus going into the next few years here. Where, in your opinion, should I be focusing my resources? And this could be time, money, into growing my agency as a marketing agency. Where should I be investing the majority of my resources in the next couple of years? Okay. Um, so let me let me play the role of academic here and give you the definitive answer. Thank you. It depends, right? <laughs> what does it depend upon? You know, earlier I, I mentioned Ted Levitt, Marketing Myopia, Simon Sinek, uh, Start With Why. I often tell my people, uh, my, my students, people don't buy products or services. People buy products and services for a purpose. And that purpose is to solve a problem they currently face. Now, the problem may not be some anxiety-inducing, uh, you know, major issue, life's issue. The problem could be something like, uh, I'm losing my hair and I need to grow some more, right? And the best example I, I have of that is I, I, I tell my students, think about Viagra, originally conceived as not a, a, re- a remedy for erectile dysfunction. It was actually a heart medication, probably will keep you alive. But when the folks at Pfizer were doing the business analysis to figure out whether to launch Viagra as a treatment for erectile dysfunction or a heart medication, they decided to let the business case decide. And in doing so, what they realized was when you sold it as a heart medication, a product that will keep you alive, it was the single biggest category of pharmaceutical sales in all the world. Right? And as baby boomers were maturing, of course, the expectation was there was going to be a lot more demand for these heart-related products. But a big market brings about big competition. Mm -hmm. And so they discovered you've got some 300 different competitors, some of them as simple and cost-free as lifestyle changes, some of them generic drugs, some of them branded drugs, 300 different competitors. The most they could charge for a tablet of Viagra was $3 a pill. But when they took that exact same product, no change in chemical formulation, packaging, distribution, and the like. And they now directed it, they now pivoted, in a sense, towards this, this erectile dysfunction market where there was no pharmaceutical treatment for erectile dysfunction. You had a monopoly. Yeah. And with that monopoly, that $3 little blue pill now could command a retail price of $30 a pill. A wow. tenfold increase in price with no attendant increase in costs. You could sell a lot less Viagra on that platform and make a lot more money than you could at $3 a pill. Mm -hmm. So to tie this back to your question, my return question to you would be, what problems will your agency solve for its clients? If you want to be a full service agency, which I don't think that exists anymore, Mm -hmm. to be honest with you, I think you're going to have some people who integrate 
services across a variety of agencies. But we all know you can't be great at everything. And you'll always be known principally for whatever it is you do best. So why did agencies like yourself develop? Well, because everybody thought if I went to one of the big ad agencies, they'd sell me advertising. Because if the only tool you got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. You can present everything in that same direction. And, and of course, it's a different skill set. And uh, you have to be willing to tear down some of the existing advertising infrastructure in order to get to the kind of agency you are. So I might ask you the question, you know, if you think about something as simple as the sales funnel, is your agency best known for its ability to generate awareness? Is it best known for its ability to translate that awareness into trial? Is it best known for its ability to take that trial and, and generate loyalty and, and long-term adoption? And that's just a simple three-part framework. And you mm -hmm. think about all the variations on sales funnels we talked about today, and you can see that there's a lot of ways that you could differentiate based on the kinds of problems that you solve for customers. In my own case, for example, if I think of myself as an agency, I don't think I'm the smartest guy. I think there are lots of people who have far more intelligence than I do, who are better with numbers than I am. I'm pretty good, I think, but there are others who are true Nobel Prize winners. I don't think I do the best research in the world or anything else. But I'm told that I'm very good at explaining complex strategies to middle management. And, you know, what, what bigger role is there in a company than to get the rest of the team, you know, pulling in the same direction? That became my specialty. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my speaking style was never to mention economic concepts or theoretical constructs. It was always to reduce it down to Viagra or uh, Lululemon or make it real. That was the thing I did best. And some companies never needed that and never hired me. And others really needed it. And, uh, and with them, I formed 20 and 30 year arrangements. It's, it's been a wonderful ride. So for you, I think the same is true. You have this, uh, this technology in which you have a subject matter expertise. And now the question is, in what direction do you want to apply it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the biggest problem that, that your agency will find is that because you've got this, this platform, which is so adaptable to so many different directions, you know, you, you'll jump on a plane one day and you'll say, geez, I was talking to this guy and wow, we, we could be doing something over here. And then I'll, you know, I'm waiting in line to get my bags. I talk to somebody else and, oh, and all of a sudden I'm playing off over here and over there. And suddenly we're doing a whole bunch of stuff, but none of it is mm -hmm. connected. And, and so there's no cost efficiencies. There's no scale. There's no ability to aggregate expertise or experience over time. You really start to have to narrow it down. And then once you've mastered that area, that's your platform to move into an adjacent field. But you've got to focus mm -hmm. on one. Win one. You know, um, right now in business schools, we, we have this situation where uh, incoming students look at all the surveys uh, of business schools to decide which one they want to go to. Everybody wants to go to number one. The problem is these surveys all use a different formula to figure out who's the best business school. Some put more emphasis on research than others. Some put more emphasis on consulting than others and, and so on. And so there's no way you can win them all. Nobody wins them all. 
I mean, even even the illustrious Harvard may win one or two. On others, it's number thirty. It just depends what what their what their jam is. And so, you know, in that regard, our favorite saying at at, uh, at Smith is, "Well, you got to be in these surveys because that's what the consumer is using." But you don't have to win them all. You just have to win one. If you win one, you can dismiss the others. <laughs> if you don't win one, then it's just sour grapes, right? But as long as you win one, you're okay. And I think the same is true in this area. As long as you can nail down one area where you are without question the, the people to go to, you know, you'd, you'd almost like it to be a case where I pick up a resume of someone who's worked for you. And my first thought is, well, you know, if they work for those guys, we know this mm-hmm. about them. That's really good advice. I will now update my sales team and my marketing team internally to focus on one aspect that we do well and really driving that home. I, I, that resonates really strongly with me too, Ken. Appreciate your experienced approach to that and, and the insights that I think a lot of our listeners who are agency owners of all sizes uh, will appreciate that information and that direction that you can provide. Ken, thank you so much for your time today. The insights that you shared with me is definitely is going to provide value far beyond my approach now, but my approach to uh, many of the issues and, and challenges that I face as an agency owner. I appreciate all of the, the candid responses that I think I would have to prep a lot more time behind to be able to respond the way you did. Uh, really do uh, appreciate the time and, and all of the insight that you've been able to share. You're very welcome, Harold. If I could say one last thing. Of course. You know, I I work at a Canadian university, which is very much like saying I'm actually a public servant because a lot of our funding comes from government. And so if your listeners uh, would like to contact me, uh, if they want to explore an issue, I would love to speak with them. Uh, They can get my contact information from you. Send me an email, uh, whatever. Happy to spend a half hour or so talking to them about uh, what we see going on, how it might apply to them. In doing so, I'm not being generous, actually. I'm being a little greedy because this is my market and this is my source of information as to what's hot and what's concerning people and so on. So uh, we can have a nice win-win. Just reach out and, uh, and talk to me and I'm happy to share with you my opinions, right or wrong. That's very generous of you, uh, Ken. To to spare your inbox, what I'll do is um, I'll put your email within the description of this podcast so that if there is a need or want to be able to reach out to you, they'll have the resource there. So again, thank you so much for your time. All of our listeners will will definitely love this episode. So thank you. And uh, we'll talk next time. You bet. Take care now. Stay safe. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 